Hi, this is Sam Genoway. I'm the author of Walter the Promise of Progress City and the Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide. And you're listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to Episode 60 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. Today we begin a new interview, and with this one we get someone who has a unique mix of experience, history, interest, and talent. Adam Berger started as a Walt Disney World cast member while pursuing his dream of being an Imagineer. It hasn't turned out exactly like he'd anticipated, but that is what he's doing now, and he's doing it for Disney and more. Adam has also written a fascinating and valuable book with a very different look at Disney parks and Disney stories called Every Guest is a Hero. Before we get into the first part of this three-part interview, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Audible.com, the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at storiesofthemagic.com audible. There's over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including my own book, Faith and the Magic Kingdom. Speaking of my book, in celebration of Disneyland's 59th anniversary and the two-year anniversary of Stories of the Magic, you will soon, and for a limited time, be able to get both Faith and the Magic Kingdom and Once Upon Your Time free. I'll tell you how at the end of the show. In this episode, Adam talks about his first job working for Disney at Walt Disney World, how a conversation with Imagineering legend Tony Baxter started him down that path, working the steam trains at the Magic Kingdom, being a volunteer reporter for the Disney internal publication Eyes and Ears, getting connected with iTech Design and his first job for them, the project that really launched his career, a volunteer assignment with iTech for Give Kids the World Village. A mini-lesson for you, one of the most important keys to success. Between working steam trains and monorails, which was his favorite to work and why? Some memorable events while he was working in the Magic Kingdom. The first project he did for Disney, subcontracted through It Ain't Shakespeare as a show writer. The kind of stuff he does now for Walt Disney Imagineering. Very specialized documents called show information guides. At least that's part of what he does. The story link between Rock and Roller Coaster and the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror at Disney Hollywood Studios. I had no idea about this, so you might learn something new on this one about a park that you may frequent. Hints about something he's worked on for Disney. Something that makes WDI different from many other clients when it comes to their view of attraction show writers. His work for Kennedy Space Center the percentage of projects that never make it out of the concept or design stages, and how he deals with the frustrations that can come from it. One of the reasons it's so much fun to work with the Imagineers. They're just as big a fan of the parks as we are. And at the very beginning of talking about other companies he's done show writing work for. 
Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and begin this story. Have you ever wanted to share something with someone just because? Well, we do a lot. So we started a podcast about, well, whatever we want. My name is Joyce. And I'm her lovely husband, Al. Uh, Well, you know what I mean. Hey, it's me, Al. Listen, I'm hijacking the Just Because podcast to start a new series all about the wonderful world of voice acting. Each episode, I'll have a professional voice actor on and ask them some serious, hard-hitting questions to get to the bottom of this in a world. You know, world. If you've ever wanted to know about the inner workings of this magical and mystical business, tune into Just Because, inside the voiceover studio. Tune in at JustBecausePodcast.com and on iTunes. And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. If you've been a listener to Stories of the Magic for any length of time, or if you know me at all, you know two things about me. One, I love Disney, especially the parks. And two, I'm fascinated by different ways to look at and enjoy them. Adam Berger gives us a chance to talk about both of those, because he's the author of the book Every Guest is a Hero. Disney's theme parks and the magic of mythic storytelling. We're going to talk about the book at length, but first, here's a little about Adam. He began writing for the themed entertainment and attraction design industry as a freelance contractor in 1992, and later served for five years as senior writer for the international attraction design firm iTech Entertainment Corporation. Today, he is the president, senior show writer, and with his wife Julia, co-owner of Burger Creative Associates, Inc., a creative writing and consulting firm based in Orlando, Florida. Since its incorporation in 2007, Burger Creative Associates has been serving companies in the themed entertainment and attraction design industry, as well as clients in the museum and education fields. Adam's credits include projects for Dollywood, Disney Event Productions, Disney Cruise Line, Kennedy Space Center, Nickelodeon Recreation, Paramount Parks, Ride the Ducks International, SeaWorld Busch Gardens, Silver Dollar City, Six Flags, Universal Creative, Walt Disney Imagineering, and many others. Almost all of his projects incorporate elements of the hero's journey, though he doesn't always feel obliged to tell that to the client. We're going to get another fascinating and different perspective today. So, Adam, welcome to Stories of the Magic. Well, thank you, and I really appreciate your inviting me to join you on your show. Thank you so much, Randy. Oh, it was my pleasure, Adam. When I read your book, and of course we're going to get into that in quite a bit of detail later on, but uh, it was such a different way to look at the parks and to look at Disney storytelling in general that I just I couldn't wait to talk to you. And uh, after kind of getting connected roundabout via Sam Genoway, who also had a very different way of looking at the parks and wrote one of the endorsements for your book. I knew this was going to be really interesting. So let's start with your time actually working for Disney first, though. How did you get started there and what did you do? Well, interestingly enough, my first job for Disney was as a steam train conductor on the Walt Disney World Railroad. This was way back in the late 1980s. Actually, I already had a BS in film production, and I had worked as a professional visual effects cameraman in L.A. for several years 
really wanted as a career was uh, to work in theme park design, preferably as, a, of course, a Disney Imagineer. And uh, somehow taking an hourly frontline job in the parks just seemed like a way to get myself on that track. Uh, so to speak. <laughs> so to speak, yes. Uh, pun semi-intended. This assumption was based in part on a personal conversation, actually, that I had had with the uh, Imagineering legend, Tony Baxter, uh, years earlier. And, uh, well, there's a whole story in there if you if you want to hear it. Yeah, please. Oh, okay. Well, um, this takes us even further back to 1979. I was a film student in Los Angeles at the time. And one year during my summer break, I took a job as a production assistant for a company called Don Stern Productions. And this happened to be the film company that was shooting all of Disneyland's commercials at the time. So uh, I ended up as an assistant on the crew that shot the very first TV commercial for Disneyland's Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. In fact, I'm, I'm even in one of the shots, uh, yeah, or at least the back of my head is, and uh, you can see me in, from the onboard camera that, and as we rode around and around and around on the mine train for the point of view shot. Anyway, Tony Baxter, who was a very young fellow at the time, uh, he was there for the filming. And, and then uh, he and I hung out together during the lunch break, uh, eating box lunches while we sat on a fence rail in front of the attraction. And Tony was just unbelievably patient. And he very generously answered all my many questions about his Imagineering career up to that point. And it wasn't much of a career. Either. I mean, he was still... Only, you know, not that many years older than I was. And I remember he told me how he had spent many hours as an operations cast member walking backwards on the people mover platform while thinking up ideas for new rides. So flash forward a few years and I'm thinking back on that conversation. And I thought, think, hey, this could be a way for me to break into Imagineering. And uh, that's how I ended up as an hourly cast member in the Magic Kingdom, riding the rails, as it were. And uh Regardless of, of, of what it did for my Imagineering career, in any case, it seemed like a good way to familiarize myself with the Disney culture from the inside and also to learn a thing or two about operations from the perspective of an onstage cast member. So uh, I worked in steam trains ultimately as a casual temporary and as a casual regular. And uh, back in those days, we were still doing the live spiel. And I still remember big chunks of it all these decades later. I even used to do the themed voice. So uh, <clears throat> as we leave Frontierland Station, if you look to your right, you can see the rivers of America. On the far side of the river is the inspiring haunted mansion and the spooky hall of presidents. No. <laughs> uh, you never lose it. it was, the thing was, it was always fun to see reactions of the passengers in the back of the train when they would look behind them and they would see me and they realized that this ancient weathered conductor voice was coming from the mouth of the skinny young kid in his 20s. So, <laughs> so uh, it was uh, interesting times. Sounds like it. You know, at the same time I was riding the rails in the Magic Kingdom, I, I also volunteered to be an area reporter for the Walt Disney World cast member newspaper, Eyes and Ears, which was published by Cast Communications, which was a part of Disney University. So um, on my own time, I would take assignments from Fran, the editor, and I would be running around all over the property doing interviews and snapping photos and writing articles. And I had already written articles for national magazines, such as American Cinematographer, so I, I knew what I was doing. And, and, of course, they were very happy with my work. And then uh, eventually the cast communications staff realized that having all these unpaid volunteer reporters running around all over property, that this opened up just the whole pile of questions about liability. You know, what would happen if one of us was injured on property while covering a story on our own time? You know, who would be responsible? So, of course, that put my uh, involvement with cast communications on hold for a while. And then in the meantime, I switched over to monorails, and I ended up as a full-time monorail pilot for the next four years. 
somehow, uh, somewhere along the way, the cast communications office figured out a way to bring me on board for a few days a week as a paid reporter on a cross-utilization basis. And uh, that's how I ended up writing literally hundreds of articles for Eyes and Ears during that period and snapping about the same number of photos. And it was all really a great experience for me because it got me very familiar with writing to length and editing my own work and becoming comfortable working under all sorts of deadline pressures. And uh, it got me all over the property and I was able to interview lots and lots of interesting people and learn a lot of inside dope about the company and learn how to write in the official company voice. Uh, the only thing it did not do was get me any closer to the Imagineering career that I'd always been coveting. Right. <laughs> so I, I eventually got to the point where I decided to take matters into my own hands, and I, I started writing. I, I just wrote a whole pile of portfolio scripts, and I, I had several motives in mind. First, I wanted to get myself into that creative mode. I wanted to start thinking like an Imagineer. And then I wanted to have samples that I could show off, something from my portfolio to prove that I had the ability to be a show writer. And then I wanted to just get myself comfortable with the formats and styles of these types of documents. The only problem with all that was that as an hourly cast member, well, it, it turned out there was just no way for me to get my portfolio in front of the powers that be at WDI. The, the channels just simply didn't exist through the structure that was in place at Disney at the time. Um, and then an interesting thing happened. A, a friend of mine introduced me to an Orlando attraction design company called iTech Productions. And I, you already mentioned them in, in your introduction. And uh, iTech, it turns out, was created by a bunch of former Imagineers. And it turns out there's a bunch of companies all over the country that you know are staffed by former Imagineers. Because what would happen is you know, every time Disney would have a big project, when it wound down, they would start laying off their Imagineers. And they had to have something to do. So... They would either form their own companies or they would team up with uh, other people who, uh, former Imagineers who had formed their companies. So you have, there's a whole bunch of these design companies out there that are staffed basically by former Imagineers. So I called up iTech and they were very nice to me, to my great surprise. And you know, I'm just this kid calling them up out of the blue, but they invited me over to their offices and let me show them my sample manuscripts. And uh, it all went very well. And then a few weeks later, iTech's creative director, at least at the time, uh, he called me in to write a guest experience treatment for an attraction that they were designing for a theme park in Japan. Uh, it was very, very little money, just, just a pittance, but I took the opportunity enthusiastically. And uh, it turned out that this would be my very first professional gig as an attraction show writer. Now, from iTech's point of view, I guess it was a test to see if I had the professional chops to be a resource for them, to see if I could listen to what they needed and deliver a document that answered all their requirements and something that you know, looked professional with proper spelling and punctuation and grammar and, and of course, you know, be able to turn it in on time, which is very important. And uh, I must have passed the test because they started calling me in on, on more projects. In my mind, that's how my career as a professional attraction show writer got started. Keep in mind, I'm doing all this. I'm writing uh, professionally for an attraction design firm staffed by former Imagineers. I'm still driving the Disney monorails. So it was like I was leading this double life. Uh, and then uh, my next big break arrived. iTech called me up one day and asked me to come in to talk to them about this very special project that they were doing. Uh, it turned out to be a volunteer gig for a charity project that they were working on for a great organization called Give Kids the World. I'm guessing a number of your listeners have already heard of them. Yeah, we've talked about it a couple times. In fact, on my very first trip to Walt Disney World a few years ago, uh, my wife and I set aside a day to volunteer at the Give Kids the World Village there. Then you, you know what an amazing place that it is. For those who aren't familiar with it, Give Kids the World provides all expense-paid Walt Disney World vacations to children 
uh, with life-threatening diseases and, and their families. And uh, they have this resort property in Kissimmee, just a few miles from the Walt Disney World front gate, and it's called Give Kids the World Village. And iTech was donating a large amount of their creative and, and engineering re resources to help them build an interactive playhouse. And they were going to call it the Castle of Miracles. Uh, I guess you saw that when you were there. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's a pretty amazing place. And the only thing is they needed they didn't have their own writer on staff and they needed somebody to write all the interactive entertainment for the castle. You know, I'm talking about the scripts for the talking great grandfather clock and you know the talking suit of armor and all the other features. The star, I can't remember what it was called, but yeah. Yeah, everything. And everything in the, in the castle has a little plaque next to it that has a little limerick, a little story that describes who they are and what they do and why they're there. And uh, it all rhymes. And they needed somebody to write that. And um, the only downside to all this would be that if I took the job, I would be working for free for months and months and months. Right. So, of course, I jumped at the opportunity. Of course. Right away, I started working very closely with the iTech designers, and before long, I, I was writing all these treatments and scripts, and around that same time, this realization started to dawn on me. They did not have an assigned show producer or director for any of the stuff I was writing. I was just showing it to people, but they didn't actually have a producer or director. So I asked them, would you like me to handle all of this for you? And they said, would you do that? Really? Really? So why not? So for quite a few months... The Castle of Miracles swallowed all my free time. I'm taking on not only the duties of the show writer, but also the producer and director of everything I'm writing. I'm, I'm casting actors and voice talent and going into recording studios and directing the, the recordings and, you know, acting like a big shot and everything and doing it all at my own expense. But in the end, it really paid off. I'm guessing you'd like to know how. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all this work I was doing for free. For Give Kids the World, it meant that I was spending a fair number of hours at the iTech design offices. And I believe there's this famous Woody Allen quote to the effect that 90% of success is just showing up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think my experience proved that that quote most of the time is true. Because what would typically happen is that I would go over to iTech for a meeting on the Castle of Miracles project. And at some point during the meeting, another project producer would poke his head into the conference room and he would say something like, hey, Adam, I was hoping you were here. Uh, can you come into my office when you're done with your meeting? So the next thing you know, I'd be walking out of iTech with a new paying assignment under my arm just because I was in the right place at the right time. And this kind of thing happened over and over. So none of this would have happened if I hadn't been working on this uh, volunteer gig for Give Kids the World. Well, uh, eventually I was getting enough paid design work coming in from iTech that I no longer had enough time to drive monorails or write for eyes and ears. So I quit Disney and I started my own freelance creative writing and design company. And that's when um, another interesting thing happened uh, over the following months and years. This is something that happens all the time in this business. Uh, several of the designers I worked with at iTech left the company and they joined other design firms where they started their own. And uh, like iTech, None of them had a show writer on their staff. So whenever any of them needed a show writer, they remembered working with me at iTech and would give me a call. And then I also added other clients over the next few years. But at one point, I remember looking back and realized that I could probably trace about 75% of my clientele back to iTech and to my volunteer work for Give Kids the World. Wow, that's fantastic. It's really kind of a mini lesson for your listeners in this. Sometimes the key to success is just to put yourself out there, even if that means working for free for a while, if it's something that you love. And 
uh, when we get to our discussion of the hero's journey and my book later in this interview, I, th I think you'll recognize this whole episode is a classic example of what we see as the acceptance of the mythic call to adventure. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but doing all of that work and taking on these extra roles uh, for iTech is at least somewhat akin to the road of trials. Well, definitely. I mean, none of it was easy. It's always challenging. You know, people say, oh, it's great to be your own boss, have your own company, just work for yourself. And it's like, no, I'm not my own boss. I have a dozen bosses. Each of my clients is a boss. And each one thinks they're the only one. Of course. They think they're my exclusive client, and they don't care that I've, I've got deadlines already lined up at the same time they want me to meet their deadline. Right. So, uh, you know, goodbye weekends, goodbye uh, turning in at a reasonable hour at night. If something needs to get done, it needs to get done, and everything else has to take uh, a back seat. Mm -hmm. I try not to let it get away from me too much. I have a family, and they're very important. But, uh, you know, you got to keep your clients happy, too. Right. Yeah, definitely. So there, there, there are definitely trials in there, just as you said. Okay. Well, before we continue on more into your work as a show writer, I actually want to go back a little bit to the the in-park work that you did, because mm -hmm. I think you're probably the first person I've talked to that did both steam trains and monorails. Which was your favorite between the two, or did you have a favorite between them? Oh, I, I think my enthusiasm was highest in steam trains, because that was when I first began working for Disney, I still had the pixie dust in the major way and was, uh, you know, still feeling that sense of magic and, and, and enchantment. I mean, I, you know, I obviously I was backstage as well. I, I, I was in the roundhouse. I, I was uh, on the spur line. I was uh, in the tunnels, the, the utilidors. I was backstage. And, you know, I saw what a very industrial facility it is just beyond the berm, just outside of the view of the guest. That was not very magical, but I was still, I, I think I was very pixelated, I suppose, at the time. I was very much in, in the uh, enchantment mode. And I think over time, as happens with a lot of cast members, uh, some of that enchantment wore off. Uh, we become literally disenchanted, and, and we just begin to see it as kind of a daily grind. And there's certain demands that are made on you, and you begin to see that, just like any job, there, there are personal issues. And so I think you know, my, my early months with the company were, were probably some of my most memorable, my favorite. I, and, and some certain events along the way that were, were very memorable and exciting. Uh, the time that I was in steam trains, even though it was only, you know, for, for less than a year, was the time that Mickey's, I think, 75th birthday came up. And that's when they opened Mickey's, what was a, initially Mickey's birthday land. Mm -hmm. And then it became Mickey's Toontown Fair. And well, Mickey's Starland before that. Oh, that's right. Mickey yeah. the Mickey Starling. And to inaugurate it, you know, they, they built a new uh, railroad station there, now Fantasyland Station. And uh, on the opening day of Mickey's birthday land, the train uh, that was driving all the reporters over there was driven by Michael Eisner. And guess who was the conductor? <laughs> that would be you, I'm guessing. And I was hanging on for dear life on the end because Michael started the train with a lurch. I mean... I guess he had not really paid attention during training, and that train lurched so hard, I, I almost was thrown off. Ooh. But I rode around, I did the live spiel and everything, and uh, I guess he got off at uh, Fantasyland, at Mickey's Birthday Land, and I uh, continued on the rest of my uh, my cycle. Later in monorails, I had a few other celebrities in my uh, cab, including Jeffrey Katzenberg one day. That was a little bit nerve-wracking. <laughs> I'm sure. What was he like? Um, well, he was sort of perfunctorily courteous to me. He got in with his family, uh, his wife and, and two children. The Mark VI monorails were new at the time. So this was around 19, 
probably 89 or 90. And I was driving monorail yellow, I recall. And he said, how do you like these new monorails? And the only thing I could think of was to say, oh, they're nifty. Okay. And he said, great. And then he looked away from me like, you know, nifty? He, did he just say nifty? <laughs> and he spent the rest of the, of the ride to Epcot chatting with Michael Eisner on a very early model cell phone. Ah, yes. One of those bricks. <laughs> Telling him that he was on the way. Yeah. Gotcha. But that was interesting. And I remember really being very concerned that we would break down along the way because you know, they were still trying to install the new rectifier gaps uh, or close up the rectifier gaps. Uh, and they were having problems almost every day. And the previous three times I had driven to Epcot, that driving cycle, the power had cut out on the monorail and had stalled out every time just before going into Epcot station. And this was the one time I drove around and it, the power did not cut out. Wow. Yeah. So I made it all the way to Epcot without grinding to a halt. I was very relieved at that. I mean, it wouldn't have been my fault, but it was still kind of embarrassing. Sure. Yeah, it may not be your fault, but they're sitting there in the cab with you, and you're the only one they have to look at and say, why are we not going anywhere? So. Exactly. Well, it would have only been for a couple of minutes before they could get power restored, but it would, mm. it would have been awkward. Right. <laughs> Besides the famous people that you had, whether executives or celebrities or whatever, do you uh, remember any other guest interactions that stood out particularly? I know it was a while ago and there was a lot of them, I'm sure, but do oh, any yeah. stand out at all? Well, I, I, it's hard for me to pick out particular ones, but I do remember a lot of people would ask if they were getting on the correct train for Epcot. You know, this would be at the station we called Concourse, which is the, at the transportation ticket center of the Epcot, the, the station for the Epcot monorail. You know, the, the, the sign would say monorail to Epcot, but they would want to know, is this the monorail to Epcot? <laughs> yes. Now, sometimes I actually look up at the sign and say, yep, yep, just confirmed it. Yep. Because, but, <laughs> but not everybody could figure out the word Epcot. So a lot of people would say, you know, they would come up with their own names, you know, um, Pockmark Center, uh, TikTok Center, Yik Yak Center, Tic Tac Center, uh, you know, Spit Spot Center, you know, uh, Ipecac Center. I remember that one. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that was always fun just to get a sense of the uh, confusion that our guests go through. One guest wanted to know, is this the monorail to that place with the big round ball thing? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> and just so you know, when you get there, there's more stuff behind the big round ball <laughs> thing. Yeah, so now don't go to the place with the big square ball thing. That's different. <laughs> so. It was always entertaining, and we, we had a lot of stories uh, that we exchanged among ourselves. And I will not go into too much detail, but we used to actually have code names for, a, uh, for, for the different guests that would come up the ramp between ourselves. So we'd say, oh, here's a 528 coming up the ramp. You know, uh, I won't uh, violate our, uh, the, the trust of the current monorail people by explaining what those mean. But, uh, yeah. Understandable. I'm sure they appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. They'll keep their code intact if they're still using it. Right. Now, once you went on and had formed your own company, Burger Creative Associates, uh, it said you did a lot of different projects, but do you remember what the first one that you actually did for Disney was? For Disney? Yeah. Well, I, I think I need to explain, first of all, that when we talk about working for Disney, I do not and have never worked directly for any of the Disney companies uh, in a creative capacity. I've always been a subcontractor. And okay. usually it's through another company called It Ain't Shakespeare. And, and it's director uh, and, and head writer and really you know, chief bottle washer, uh, uh, Colette Picot. 
she and I have been friends for decades, almost as long as I've been in this business. And she was even the MC at my wedding. So it's always through her company that I, I work for Disney. Okay. So let's make that clear. Sure. My work, first work for Disney uh, was not actually for Walt Disney Imagineering. It was actually for Disney Event Productions. Uh, and nearly all of that involved outlines or treatments or scripts for convention shows that Walt Disney World was hosting for companies ranging from Best Foods, the makers of M&Ms and other fine candy products, to uh, organizations such as Easter Seals. So uh, what, what was the first one I did them on that in that respect? I did a convention show for Hewlett Packard. Okay, and was that something that Disney was putting on to try to get Hewlett Packard in as a sponsor, or? Oh no, this was. I guess I can reveal a little bit of their secrets here. Uh, Disney uh, had packages that they would offer to uh, Disney. This is Disney Event Productions again. That's not to be confused with Walt Disney Imagineering, but they would mm-hmm. uh, D- Disney Event Productions, among other things, you know, besides staging parades and meet and greets and such. They would also work with companies that would come in for conventions and they had packages and one of the packages was a show that linked the Disney heritage with the heritage of Hewlett Packard or Mars candies or, or Easter seals or whatever. And it was a show called a tale of two artists. So it would parallel the life of whoever the founders of their company was and, and the history of their company with the life of Walt Disney and the history of Walt Disney productions. And, uh, Sometimes it didn't line up very well, but most of the time it lined up surprisingly well. Hmm. And in retrospect, all their stories were heroes' journeys. So, uh, again, we'll talk about that later in our conversation, I'm sure. So this was a a show that, you know, they already had the format for it because it had been written a number of times before. But it had to be customized each time for the new company, you know, whether it was train air conditioning or or Best Foods or Easter Seals or whoever. So I think the first one I did was probably for Hewlett Packard and bringing their – their story into line with the Disney story and, and seeing how the, the two companies paralleled and the connections that they shared and the outlook that they shared. And uh, there was a musical. It had, it had music at the end. I did not write the songs. They already had those in place. But I wrote pretty much all the, uh, the narration and the dialogue and the, you know, all, all the bits that the characters would do and obviously involved a great deal of research into the, the history of, of whatever company was coming in. So I remember it was uh, quite a trip. And then to actually go into the convention center and stand there and watch my words, you know, just a, a couple of weeks after I'd written them, being performed by some really talented actors with music and everything. It was it was pretty impressive. I can imagine. Actually, I probably kind of can't imagine. No, no. And especially with that quick of a turnaround. I mean, you do something for an attraction and, you know, a couple of years down the road, you get to see a portion of what you did that's there. But to have it just a couple of weeks later and pretty much all of it right there in front of you. Yeah, it was just barely enough time for the actors to memorize their lines most of the time. So it was interesting. Sometimes they would improvise a little bit. But, <laughs> but I, you know, it was always fun when you could find a way to make it work. Mm hmm. Because it was a challenge, but I enjoy challenges, and it was great to see it when it actually clicked, and and especially when you had a talented director and a talented uh, team of performers and and technicians working on it. They knew what they were doing. They were very professional. You'd have to be to be able to put on something like that, I would imagine. Yeah, and it was a one-shot deal. You know, it was the only time they would perform it. You know, they, they, usually there would be like awards and drinks and everything going on before that, and then at the end of the evening they would put on this. 40 minute show and uh you know it, it would sort of bring the evening to an end hmm. of course everybody had been liquored up by that point so it was a lot easier to, to laugh at some of the jokes always helps <laughs> right 
They'd had a few drinks. Everything was fantastic. Yeah, the one show that really kind of fizzled was when they they did it in the morning. The, the show was at like 10.30 in the morning. And you know, people were just starting to get the sugar low after breakfast. They were wondering when the buffet would open. and Yeah, so that was, that was not the, a very successful show. I think people were distracted. I'm sure they were, yeah. Uh, what about any other projects that you've worked on or for Disney, either event productions or Imagineering or just any other kind of memorable ones for you? Well, I haven't done anything with Walt Disney event productions in a while, but uh, probably not in quite a few years. But uh, I have been working on uh, WDI stuff for quite a, a few years now and uh, doing stuff all the time. I, in fact, I'm, I just did something for them uh, a week and a half ago, and I'm going to do something probably next week for them. Again, through Inane Shakespeare, subcontracting through uh, Colette and her company. And uh, a lot of those gigs involve having me compose materials for internal use by the Imagineers. This is stuff that, as a regular guest, you'd never get to see. Uh, I'm talking about training and reference documents, uh, archive documents. This is very highly specialized stuff, as you might guess, and uh, very, very few people are interested to write this kind of thing because it's very specialized. So uh, Colette and I really, we're on the proverbial short list whenever one of these documents needs to be written. And that tends to be pretty often whenever they can find the money to do it. Sure. Now out here in California, Disney California Adventure, they have something called the Blue Sky Cellar. Yes. And when they had the display out for Buena Vista Street, Mm -hmm. they had several, I would imagine, replicas of documents uh, kind of throughout it that explained things like for the Fiddler, Pfeiffer and Practical Cafe, mm-hmm. so, you know, we can imagine that Walt Disney, when he came to California, might have eaten in a cafe like this. And here's the things he would have seen. And this might have given him the inspiration for the three little pigs. And so we've designed things a certain way. And so, you know, you look for these elements in it that connect that story to the story of Buena Vista Street. And there was a lot of that kind of thing. I think there was probably half a dozen or so of those documents that talked about different pieces of the street. Is that the kind of thing or one of the kinds of things that you would work on? Or is that a different specialization? Sometimes it's that kind of thing, but a lot of it is done after the fact. A lot of what I've been writing uh, for Disney has to do with attractions that have already opened or just getting ready to open. So it's not something that's used in the design. It's something that's used as a document for reference uh, in the future. So when uh, Imagineers go back and uh, you know, if they're going to make changes, they, they need to know the thought process that went into these attractions or hotels or retail venues or entire streets or entire lands or entire parks. So they need to know what the thought process was that the Imagineers were going through and how the story was told through the design choices that were made. And somebody has to document all that. And that's what a lot of these documents, they're called SIGs, uh, Show Information Guides. So the primary purpose is to give the Imagineers years from now when they want to make changes or additions. So, you know, let's say they're going to, somebody's going to make a, uh, you know, add an ice cream stand to uh, Tower of Terror. It, it needs to fit in, right? So if they do that, you know, they need to be able to go back and see what the thought process was that got them to the design that they're currently using at the Tower of Terror. So this is a document that does that. If you're a contractor who's actually supposed to design and build this thing, then you should you should know what the thought process was. And if you're one of the attraction hosts, 
working at, at any of these attractions, you should probably know what the thought process was and how the story of the attraction is told through the design elements. So whenever I get to write one of these things, it, it's really kind of an exploration for me because I, I get to read some of the original documents that the, uh, the Imagineers themselves were doing, transcripts of videos that were taken of them describing what they were thinking, and I get to, to dig through all this material, and I, I'm really looking at the DNA, the creative DNA of these projects and learning all sorts of things that I never would have guessed just looking at it. Things about the, the way the, the attractions and, and the lands are laid out, the, just facts that you wouldn't th think of. The fact that, for instance, Sunset Boulevard in, uh, in Disney's Hollywood Studios, the stories of the Tower of Terror and G-Force Records, which is the setting for uh, Rock and Roller Coaster, that their stories are linked. Really? Yes, they are absolutely linked. G-Force Records used to be called Guiding Force Records, and they, and they were on Gower Street around the corner from the Tower of Terror Hotel. And back in the 1930s, as the jazz age was really beginning to take off, all the jazz musicians were, were coming to G-Force Records to record their 45 vinyl records. And, and this became entertainment for the stars that would, would hang out at the, uh, at the hotel. They would come out of the lobby and go around the corner to, to the studios on Gower Street of the uh, of Guiding Force Records and watch these uh, live recordings. And then as uh, Guiding Force Records became more successful, they decided to have this great big banquet one night in one of the ballrooms at the uh, Tower of Terror Hotel. And for a while, I don't think it's there anymore, but for a while, if you looked at the sign on one of the closed banquet rooms, just before you go into the gift shop, you can see that the party that was having a party in that ballroom was Guiding Force Records, which became G-Force Records, which is where your experience takes place. And, of course, they were there on the night that strange lightning bolt hit the building and caused the, the whole supernatural experience that you uh, relive whenever you ride Tower of Terror. Oh, that's incredible. I had no idea. I love that. Yeah. That's fantastic. You know, they don't make it obvious to the guests, but it is part of the backdrop for the designers. So it gives them a direction as they're creating these experiences. They know what the storyline is, and everything that they do sort of conforms to that storyline, even if they don't make a big point of sharing that with the average visitor. So, And it's there so that the more frequent visitors who want to pay attention to the details have it. And it's also, I think, there to provide that sense of continuity and uh, overall structure so that everything feels right. That's exactly what's going on. It's a very good way of describing it, Randy, because what you want to do if you're creating any kind of immersive environment is you have to make it believable. It's believable on, on its own terms. I mean, you know, it may involve aliens or some sort of strange supernatural event or some of some kind it may be completely preposterous but it has to have its own internal logic and it has to hang together and the storyline has to make sense from an emotional psychological and in my mind a mythic standpoint it all has to hang together and it's got to follow its own logic and 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 do so in a consistent and uh and believable way mm -hmm. right you've also done work like i mentioned in the intro and i didn't even i don't think include all of them <laughs> Uh, of all the different things that you've worked on outside of oh, Disney. Oh, well, I, I didn't get to tell you about the fun stuff. <laughs> oh, no, please. Yeah, it's not all SIGs. Uh, I also get to do fun stuff from time to time. So like treatments and guest narratives and concept documents for resort experiences and retail and dining and attractions. A lot of them may never happen, probably most of them. Uh, I can't tell you what any of them are, but I'm pretty certain most of them are never going to get built. And it's really a shame, I, I have to say, because a lot of this stuff, that they are coming to me with is incredibly exciting. I mean, 
if your listeners knew about some of the ideas that they have been kicking around at WDI, their heads would explode. I mean, I, I don't mean that figuratively. I mean, literally, they would literally go kaboom. <laughs> and then on very rare occasions, I actually get to be the show writer on a major Disney attraction. Very, very rarely, but it's happened. This was the case on one particular e-ticket attraction that opened not too long ago and which got a lot of fanfare at the time. There's a matter, unfortunately, of this pesky non-disclosure agreement I was required to sign, so I cannot tell you which attraction it was or even which park it was in. But uh, it's an attraction that a lot of your listeners have probably experienced, and I hope they enjoyed it. And uh, getting to work on it was a, just a trip. It would mean a fantastic experience. It had me immersed in the project for nearly 18 months. And, wow. Uh, there were multiple trips. Uh, they flew me out to, to California to spend time at WDI headquarters in Glendale for meetings and also travel to other locales for meetings and research. And it was really something I consider to be a high point in my design career. I'm sure. Yeah. Of course, I, I love all my attraction design clients, but WDI is special. They were the first. They were the ones that defined the profession of theme park designer. And they are still very much attuned to Walt Disney's storytelling legacy. Um, because of that... Uh, this is interesting to me that the Imagineers tend to hold the show writer in very high esteem. And that that's a wonderful and to be honest with you, a very unusual feeling for me to get that amount of respect from my clients and colleagues. <laughs> and, and then I really feel obligated to live up to those heightened expectations. So it's also a bit of a burden, but I guess in a good way. And right. After all these years, I'm still not a full-time Disney Imagineer. Instead, I, I suppose you could call me an honorary Imagineer. And uh, that's actually what it's, those are the exact words that are embossed on the side of the Mickey hard hat that Disney Imagineering gave me as a thank you gift a couple of years ago. So needless to say, that hard hat remains one of my most treasured possessions. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I should wear it around uh, just, you know, when, whenever I'm going to the mall or shopping. <laughs> hey, look, I'm an Imagineer. I'm an honorary Imagineer. <laughs> right. Wear it to sleep in bed. <laughs> I can imagine that might be frowned on just a little bit. <laughs> it might make, might make things a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Is there any project that you've worked on that you can mention what it was, or are they all covered by the various non-disclosure agreements? I don't want to get you in trouble, but if there's any that you can mention, then... Yeah, I, if we were face-to-face -face talking personally, I could tell you. Okay. I would have no problem, but I, I, it's just not something I... All right, I'll tell you what, though. I can, I can give your listeners a clue a hint about what this big one was. Uh, it's it's going to be a little bit of a scavenger hunt. First of all, they need to get a copy of my book. And on the very first page, on the blurbs page, you mentioned the blurbs that some of these uh, people wrote for me that were very, very flattering. And one of the uh, people who wrote that blurb, that name turns out to be the name of uh, the uh, creative director of this big project, that this big attraction that opened a few years ago that I worked on. And if you buy my book and find that name on the first page and then Google it, in a matter of minutes, you will, you will know which project I worked on. You'll be able to figure it out. Okay. You'll have to use a little bit of intuition, but you, you, the chances are you'll be able to find it. If, if you're looking right now, Randy, don't say it out loud. I won't. <laughs> I, I looked on the page. I'll look it up later, and I will not give it away. Okay. That's, that all sounds really, really exciting. Uh, and maybe it is kind of the best of both worlds that you get to be more of an honorary Imagineer than a regular, 
quote unquote Imagineer, because you then do have the opportunity, number one, to work on some other projects outside of the Disney projects. But also number two, you don't have to rely on their fiscal calendar or their production schedule or something like that for your income, because you do have that diversified client base. Well, that's very true. And I, I love all my clients. I, you know, Disney is special in its own way, but I, I love the variety and the scope of projects I get as an independent creative contractor. And, uh, and we were talking about, as you listed the number, and these are some of the big players in the industry. So it's always interesting projects. And it keeps me sharp and on my toes. And it gives me the opportunity to work with lots and lots of amazingly creative people. So if an offer ever came along to work for WDI full time, and it might, I don't know. But if it ever did, I, I would probably have to think it over very carefully. I'm, I'm guessing I might end up saying yes, but I, it wouldn't necessarily be an instant yes. Yeah, I can understand that. Is there anything more you wanted to share about things that you've done for Disney, or is this a, a good time to transition into some of those other projects? I'll let you lead the way, however you feel. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I didn't cut out any, yeah. any of the fun stories or anything that you were wanting to share. Um, now, when I mentioned earlier that I was back at Walt Disney World, it was actually a few years ago, it was 2010. My wife and I went back and did a big trip to Central Florida to celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary. I'm also top. Thank you. <laughs> and one of my favorite things that we did back there, it's, it's one of those things I never thought I'd actually get to do or see. And so being there was, was really meaningful for me, was the Kennedy Space Center. Oh, yes. And that was something that I had, had read about that you worked on some projects for there. Yeah. Well, I've written a number of exhibit treatments over the years. I'm, I'm a very big space enthusiast, so I'm always very excited whenever one of those opportunities comes along. Um, unfortunately, none of the exhibits that I've helped design over the years has ever made it into the production for one reason or another, but that tends to be the part for the course in this business. Uh, really, you know, out of any 10 or 20 projects you work on, only one of them will ever see the light of day if, if you're lucky. On the other hand, um, more recently, actually just in the last few weeks, I, I helped one of my design clients write the storyline for a new exhibit being planned for the space center. This was actually, uh, part of a design competition, a preliminary design competition, which is referred to in our business as an RFP, a request for proposal. Uh, our group was up against a, a number of other design companies with their own proposals, but our design solution won the competition. So it looks like this new exhibit is going to be moving forward. They're working on the contracts now, and uh, sounds like I'm going to be the, uh, the show writer for it. And uh, if all moves forward properly in the next year or two, uh, this, this one could be added to uh, your your next experience when you come down to visit. Great. How did you, especially early on, deal with working on all of these different projects and only five or 10% maybe ever actually seeing the light of day? Was that frustrating or how, how did you deal with that? Well, well, it is frustrating. Some of them, you, you go into it just knowing that they're never going to get off the ground. It's just obvious. But sometimes one of them will surprise you and they'll go all the way and you're just like, oh, wow, they actually pulled it off. I thought it was pie in the sky. But sometimes they, they actually managed to open them. There have been a number of projects that I really thought were going to be fantastic and should have had a chance to go all the way through. There's usually three stages in any design project in the attractions business, and that is concept and then uh, development and production. So design development, I guess, is the second stage. So I'd say you know, for every 10 projects that you get through the concept stage, only one of them might make it to design development. And then out of any 10 projects that you get through D&D, &D, only one of those might make it into production. So at this point, 
you know, the, the math kicks in and you're, you're really talking at best only one out of 10 production projects, but maybe more realistically one out of a hundred, uh, out of all the concepts. I mean, wow. It, but you know, it, it's going to vary for me. It really depends on when you're called in. When I was working at iTech, the ratio of abandoned projects was much higher because I was always called in at the very beginning, but working, uh, on my own now full time, sometimes I'm called in after the project has already gotten into design development. So you know, when a project makes it to a, a higher stage in the process, at that point, you know, there's a higher, a higher chance mathematically that it's going to go all the way. So I think my, my ratio of open projects to shelved ones is a little higher than, than the one to 100. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. Although, you know, I, I can say again, there's a number of Disney projects that I've worked on over the years that just all have fallen by the wayside, but nothing ever goes completely away. I saw one thing I worked on years ago for one of the American parks end up in uh, in Hong Kong. Huh. Not in the same way, but parts of it. You could, you could see little bits and pieces of, of what we had discussed in this new uh, Hong Kong Disneyland experience, mm-hmm. which, which turned out to be a, a food and beverage venue. Yeah, I know I've heard that there are various pieces of things from over the last 30 or 40 years that ended up getting used in one way or another always. at California yeah, I, I mean, Adventure. Well, it's true of all the parks. There's, you can always see bits and pieces of things. If you know the story of Tony Baxter and his colleagues and who came up with Discovery Cove uh, for Disneyland, I think Sam Genoway does a great job of talking about that in his book, The Disneyland Story. A lot of that ended up at Disneyland Paris, and even more of it ended up at Tokyo Disney Seas. So you know, nothing ever gets completely shelved or abandoned the bits and pieces are still going to rise up and get resurrected somehow and become integrated into new attractions right this is why it's so great that they have these archives there that in such a long memory and i must say this about the disney imagineers one of the great reasons why it's so much fun to work with them is that they are big disney fans i mean I, i read some of these blogs and comments from people and they say oh the disney company they don't care anything about their heritage they don't care anything about the guest experience they're just in it for the money but nothing could be further from the truth from what i've experienced the disney imagineers are just as big a fan of the parks as you and i are and they have just as long a memory and you can see them pulling from their fascination and their their obsession with Disney and, and its history and, and things that have come before and, and, and ideas that were abandoned and, and just finding ways to put them into the new attractions. They have a, as much of a love affair with uh, the company and, and its legacy as, as any of us do. That's really good to hear. It's, it's always seemed that way to me, but it's good to hear that confirmed and reinforced. Yeah, you will never find bigger enthusiasts than, than the ones who work for them at Imagineering. Yeah. I'd imagine it almost has to be that way to some degree. It helps. Yeah. And I think it comes through in a lot of their work. Mm-hmm. I've seen a number of the attractions in the last few years where you can you can tell, you can see that, you know, that, that love was there. It was not just somebody doing a job. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's three other parks that were mentioned in your bio that I'm just going to kind of lump all three of them together. Sure. And then you can tell me if there's anything that you worked on or parts of anything that you worked on that saw the light of day at any of these. Sure. Because each one of them is significant to me in one way or another. I'm sure if somebody else was doing this interview, they'd ask about others, but (laughs) um, they're not. So (laughs) uh, we had mentioned SeaWorld. 
uh, Silver Dollar City, which my dad actually used to work at Silver Dollar City, oh, and a couple podcasting friends grew up going there, and a lot, I think still go there quite a bit, uh, Nate and Matt Parrish from Wedway Radio. Uh, okay. And then Dollywood, which I just think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. So uh, is anything you worked on for any of those make it off design and into production? Yeah, I mentioned that you know, a lot of the work I do for Disney is uh, subcontracting through it at Shakespeare. But a lot of the other companies I work for, they're also contractors. They're not theme park operators. Uh, you know, iTech Productions and Falcon's Treehouse and you know, a bunch of the other ones. You know, they're design companies. And so – they just don't have a show writer on staff most of the time, so they uh, they'll, they'll call me in and I'll be part of their ad hoc uh, creative team. But I do have this one client that has its own in-house uh, attraction design studio, sort of like their equivalent of WDI, and that's Persian. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A special thank you to Adam Berger for being my guest, and to you for listening. Next time, we really dive into what every guest as a hero is all about. So come back then to learn how Disney stories and your story are a reflection of the hero's journey. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, you've written a book, you're blogging, writing or performing music, art, whatever, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to and hear from people who've worked for Disney. So if you've worked for the Walt Disney Company in any capacity and you'd like to share a positive story, I'd love to hear about it. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, we can talk about that too. And if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience and you've had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic or had any special Disney experience you want to share or give a compliment or a thank you for anything Disney's done, I'd love to hear from you too. In all of these cases, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. I mentioned at the start of the show that soon you'll be able to get my books for free. Here's how. For two days only, July 16th and 17th, both Faith in the Magic Kingdom and my first book, Once Upon Your Time, will be available for free for Kindle download. You don't need a Kindle to read them, though. You can use the Kindle app for your phone, your tablet, or your computer. Just go to storiesofthemagic.com slash freebooks, and that'll take you directly to the Amazon page that has both books listed, and from there you can choose either or both. Again, that's July 16th and 17th only. Also, as a reminder, I'll be at the Disneyana Expo in Garden Grove on July 20th. I'll have paperback copies of both of my books available at a special show discount, and of course I'd love to meet you. So if you'll be in the area, please stop by the show and say hi, and while you're there, check out all the cool stuff people have for sale and meet some pretty amazing people. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. Ratings like that make it easier for people to find the show in searches, so they can enjoy these interviews and conversations and experiences as well. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash magic 
Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash stories of magic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google Plus. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.